This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey there. Before the show begins, we wanted to ask for you, the listeners, to help us out with something. We're working on this episode about queer love and the internet for Pride Month. If you have met a partner at any time in your life on the internet, it doesn't have to be a dating app. It can be through fandom or Neopets forums or even on a BBS, if you know what that is. Hello, take your Metamucil. But can you do us a favor and record a short voice memo telling us all about your love story and email it to us at icymi at slate.com? Once again, record a voice memo and email that to icymi at slate.com. We're hoping the episode will go up at the end of June or so. So the sooner the better. I'm Rachel Hampton. And I'm Candace Lim. And you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And this was a pretty big, jam packed holiday weekend. Rachel, what did you get up to? Oh my God, so much. There was a party every single night, and then I took the train down to D.C. because my little brother is looking at colleges this year. I know. He's looking at Howard. And so I took the train to hang out with my parents in a lovely Airbnb. So I'm currently in D.C. with our senior supervising producer, Daisy. We're in the same space. Also, it was Father's Day. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that happened. It was Father's Day, Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. the thing is, Father's Day to me, is one of those holidays that always just kind of clogs up the timeline. People have cheesy captions and Polaroids and photos of their Mm. hot dads from the 80s, whatever. (laughs) But I have to say, this weekend, there was one post that stood out amongst the others. It has imprinted on my mind, and it is from our girl Jennifer Lopez, a.k.a. J-Lo, who posted what I can only describe as a thirst trap of her husband, Ben Affleck. Now, Rachel, please tell me you saw this. Oh, of course I saw this. You couldn't be online without seeing this photo just spread across the timeline. I mean, Thirst Shop is the perfect way to describe it. Ben Affleck is quite literally just shirtless in this photo. Mm. And you are um, seeing him from the vantage point of basically being situated right near his uh, washboard abs. And you're kind of looking up. Um, It's a very suggestive angle, let's be real here. And listen, Ben looks good. Yeah. Ben looks good. Ben has been in the gym. Ben has been shredding. Ben is counting his micros. There he, (laughs) I was just like, okay, okay. I mean, 
other significant details. One, this is not a photo of his back. It is a photo of his front. So unfortunately, we do not get to see the rumored phoenix rising from his back. However, I didn't know he had two tattoos, one on both of his biceps. So that was a fun discovery. Um, I will also say, personally, never thought Ben Affleck was like capital H hot. But J-Lo... She is a woman with a woman's gaze. And I got to admit, I reconsidered. I was like, I think Ben Affleck is hot now. No, I I agree. I always feel like Ben Affleck is one of those people who looks better depending on who he's standing next to. And so when he's standing next to J-Lo, I'm like, oh, yes, of course. Obviously, I understand. But in this photo, he's standing next to no one but his own, again, washboard abs. And I thought, wow, not necessarily my type, but I see it. I see it. I see it for him. Exactly. I'm not going to yuck JLo's yum. And I will Never. also say that the caption here, pretty innocent. It says, Daddy Appreciation Post, Happy Father's Day, Papa. And it's a carousel that starts with a thirst trap. And then it becomes a video of her talking about Ben as a father when she appears on The View. He's an amazing dad. It brings tears to my eyes. It's just, he, he Also, is. I just need to bring up the similarities between this and the iconic post that was posted when they went IG official. That post was three photos of JLo looking gorgeous on a yacht. Thirst trap, thirst trap. And then hidden away in the last slide was the photo of her kissing Ben. Anyway, I love this. I support this. But some people did not because over the weekend, some people were like really mad in JLo's comments. Rachel, why did they get mad? I truly don't know. I At first, I thought they got mad for the reason that I was confused, which is that I'm about to really reveal my benefit ignorance here, which is I didn't realize Ben Affleck had children. And so I, <laughs> I thought this was like a metaphorical daddy post mm, only to find sure. out it was a literal father of three children post. Mm-hmm. So once I found that out, I was like, oh, he's not appropriating dad culture. He is just a father. So Mm -hmm. then I was like, why are people mad? Turns out people think that posting a thirst trap is somehow counterintuitive to Father's Day, which makes me wonder if these people have been on the Internet in the past, I don't know, 10 years where everyone takes Father's Day to demonstrate how hot their father used to be. (laughs) Um, One commenter wrote on the post, why would you post a shower pic of your husband? That's appreciating him as a dad. Weird. Lol. That LOL at the end really added nothing there. You could have left that off commenter. Exactly. And like, guys, how do you think he became a father? And I I just need to read this other comment that really made me laugh. It says, have you lost your mind? He has kids. What daughter wants to see her dad half naked? Learn that some things are best kept privately. Yeesh. I mean, <laughs> people are so mad. But I do have to say that we... As a show, we are a pro benefit podcast and we stand the trap. In fact, I say bring it on. And when I say it, I mean the uncropped version of the <laughs> selfie, Jennifer. Because you know that beneath that crop, uh. there is nothing. There's nothing. Uh-huh. And that is beautiful. I mean, we are now a pro benefit podcast because up until this point, I got to admit I was purely neutral, but I am being swayed by your adoration of benefit. They, they kind of exist in you know, the nebulous A-list celebrity where I'm like, oh yeah, they exist. But I do love them as a couple. And that's because I love love. 
And also because they are one of those A-list couples that is always getting papped. So I always see photos of them seemingly in love, including my favorite photo, which is a very typical Ben Affleck photo in that he has like the most dead-eyed expression on his face because he hates paparazzi, which is fair. And then he's standing at the top of a set of stairs. And at the bottom (laughs) of the set of the stairs is J-Lo with just this beatific smile on her face. Yes, And I'm like, girl... Tell me what you're smiling about. <laughs> I just I just need to know. Oh my <laughs> and then God. I saw the photo she posted of him Father's Day and I was like, that's what you're smiling about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is such a good photo, Rachel. I mean, she was in the Hill House dress. We yes. know what yes. went down in that Miami Menchard. <laughs> we know. I mean, we that's know a good naps one. weren't the only thing taken in that dress. <laughs> Ooh. My favorite Benefer moment is a bit of a deep cut. It was okay. taken in July of 2021, and it's Benefer being papped walked together in the Hamptons. And in this photo, they're both wearing like this like cream colored khakis and sweaters. It's very matchy matchy. And there is this one photo from the set where JLo is like leaning into Ben and he looks like he's about to kiss her forehead. He's got an arm wrapped around her. They are basically cuddling on Maine. And I just love this photo. It made me want to go to the Hamptons and snuggle up with my boo. Honestly, same. I mean, it doesn't take a lot for me to want to go to the Hamptons and snuggle up with my um, boo that does not exist. But (laughs) I feel like we should keep this energy and just go to the Hamptons. You know, the thing that I own Mm -hmm. because my last name is Hampton. I'm joking. If I own the Hamptons, I would not be on this podcast. Let's be real here. (laughs) But we are going to the Hamptons metaphorically because on today's show we're talking about a phenomenon that has blown up on tiktok for the past couple years now and that is my super bowl otherwise known as hampton's private chef tiktok now these are tiktoks of private chefs who are employed by wealthy families or clients like benifer and they basically come to their hampton's home in the summer and cook meals for them A lot of these TikToks are day-in-the-life vignettes that include commuting from the city, grocery shopping, pureeing veggies from the garden, and serving up these beautiful, gorgeous, Michelin-star-level dishes. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Think Nancy Myers core, Mm -hmm. but also make it the help. (laughs) So to help us dive into the greatest season of all, is none other than Bettina McAlintal. She is a senior reporter at Eater.com, and she'll be helping us break down who exactly becomes a private chef and what these TikToks mean for the future of the culinary workforce. We'll get into that and more after the break. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime. Day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
And we're back with Bettina McAlintal, a senior reporter at Eater.com. She's written for Bon Appetit and Vice, but y'all might remember Bettina from an episode we did together last September where we were talking about the ways that food content on TikTok tends to be viewed as inherently instructional rather than for the personal edification of the creator. Basically how TikTok turns every person posting food content into an influencer against their will. It was a great episode, and I'm so glad Bettina's back with us. Bettina, hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm so excited. I realized somehow we didn't ask you this last time you came on the show, so we have to ask now, which is, what is your very first internet memory? Oh, man. Okay. So it was definitely, definitely Neopets. Like, I was like, I have, like, you know, like everyone was talking about it. I was like, I have to get on Neopets. It was like my first memory of like really starting shit on the internet because I would just like, (laughs) I was obsessed with Good Charlotte. So I would just go on the Neopets forums and fight with people to be like, no, Good Charlotte's better than pop. Um, And that is like my formative internet identity. (laughs) Oh my God. I think, okay, I am totally realizing that I forgot that Neopets had a forum section. Oh yeah, it was a mess. I lost so many Neopoints because my accounts would get banned for being too aggressive. Yeah. I'm definitely more chill on the internet now than when I was a 10-year-old. <laughs> Man, I love this answer. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit to your internet specialties now. Bettina, you are a food writer and reporter, and we brought you on the show today to talk about Hampton's private chef season. And Bettina, you tweeted a little thing that made both me and Rachel go, ooh, smash the like button. Uh, Bettina, do you remember the first time you stumbled upon Hampton's Private Chef TikTok? And could you maybe, like, describe what these videos sound like and look like for our listeners? Like, I'm guessing it was, like, late at night and I was, like, in my bed, like, not living a glamorous life, right? And so then the algorithm served up, like, a video of Wishbone Kitchen, Mm -hmm. Meredith Hayden, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like in the sun, in like a cute apron, outside in a garden, picking herbs and like looking at zucchini in like a beautiful raised bed. Um, And I just remember being like, wow, this is like, this is so nice. Mm -hmm. I think it just felt like it felt like such, it was one of those moments where I felt like such a contrast between like my life and like, oh, this is how some other people live, right? Like they, like they have private chefs, they have these gorgeous private gardens. Um, So yeah, I think just like sort of watching her sort of get the ingredients and then start to cook with them just felt very enticing. And then I've just been down that rabbit hole ever since. Mm -hmm. And I would say these videos are very standard for the day in the life genre, very kind of like chop, chop, coffee, hard cuts, blah, 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 blah. But stepping back a little bit, you know, you write about the restaurant industry, the food industry, who usually becomes private chefs? Because I was like, are these people who work in restaurants during like non-summer seasons? Do you like have to go to culinary school? Like basically how good do you have to be to be a Hamptons summertime private chef? I mean, I think it's a mix of things. Like I know of a lot of private chefs who definitely did go to culinary school. And I do know of chefs who, you know, who do the restaurant thing and when they have a little bit like 
when it's like a little bit slower, they'll go out to the Hamptons, for example, or people who just do that on the side. But then I think there have been some people, especially on TikTok, who like didn't go to culinary school Mm -hmm. and are just, you know, just like well connected and are good chefs. So I think it's a mix. I mean, you know, I think the thing I've really noticed about private chefing is like, it, it seems right. Like Meredith Hayden has this, you know, has an amazing amount of flexibility, it seems like. Mm-hmm. But I've also heard of a lot of people who like private chef for people where it's not, you know, they're not doing stuff that's in, as involved. It's much more sort of adhering to like a strict diet or specific needs. So I think the range of like culinary sort of chops that you need also differs a lot because you know, I don't think not everyone is making these really like elaborate spreads all the time, I think. So you've been mentioning Meredith Hayden, who is the, I'm just going to say the genius behind <laughs> the account Wishbone Kitchen. I also think she's a pioneer in that I feel like she is the first person I really saw going viral for being a private chef in the Hamptons. So we're going to play one of her videos that went viral last summer, which was her first year doing her Hamptons season content. Day in my life as I live in private chef in the Hamptons, I wake up around 645 and get ready. I start my day with a crisp diet Coke and then I grab some vegetables from the garden. I've been obsessed this with This video gives me Nancy Meyer chic. Mm. I want to be in this video despite the fact that I am the opposite of a morning person. Getting up before 10 a.m. is equal to being tried at the criminal court in The Hague for me. (laughs) I don't want to do it. And yet I love this content and I'm not the only one. This video is from last June and currently has 23.8 million views, which is astronomical in terms of TikTok virality. Like I said, last summer was the first time Meredith started posting from the Hamptons, and it's become such a phenomenon the last year that her followers have been commenting on her videos over, you know, the fall, the winter, the spring, hyping up Hampton season like it's their personal Super Bowl. And again, I'm one of them. I love this content. And it seems like you do too, Bettina, because last September, you tweeted, summer is officially over. Wishbone Kitchen's last day, private chefing in the Hamptons. And then just last week, you tweeted, it's summer with a screenshot of one of Meredith's TikToks. That tweet of yours currently has 63,000 likes. What do you think it is about Meredith specifically that just scratches so many people's content itch? I think a lot of it is just this like relatability thing, right? Like I think all of us wish this would happen to us because I think her origin story is like she worked at Condé Nast Mm -hmm. and then sort of over the pandemic, she just started cooking and then like landed this great client and ended up doing the summer in the Hamptons, right? And I think that as a person who likes to cook and like works in media, like, you know, if I ever get laid off one day, that's all I can hope for is that like someone is like, hey, do you want a private chef for me in the Hamptons? So I think that's part of it. Like this idea that she doesn't feel sort of too it's too far away from like the life I'm living for example but it's like it's far and away enough that it's like this fairy tale of like what I could have right mm-hmm. mm, that makes so much sense in that I literally just thought during the most recent wave of media layoffs if I get laid off what am I gonna actually do what are my transferable skills and then I was like what if I Someone who, again, hates getting up in the morning and has no professional restaurant skills went to culinary school to become a private Mm. chef in the Hamptons, just like Meredith Hayden. The relatability is such a big part of it. (laughs) And it makes sense because Meredith cites Emma Chamberlain as one of her inspirations, which 
makes so much sense to me. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think also just like, I think it's also the fact that it's like this really idealized notion of work and especially work in like the food world, right? Because if you go to like a lot of people are working in restaurants and like the reality is they are like drudgery. They are hard. They are sweaty and gross and you are not outside. You are in like a hot kitchen, right? And so it's this way of sort of seeing food world, like food work that looks so, it looks so ideal. Like you get to be in a like beautiful space all alone. And like, you know, I know private chefs and like they it's definitely not as glamorous right like Meredith even shows it she's like dragging the ingredients on the subway and it looks kind of like I'm like yeah that's not fun like I carry like two tote bags and I'm like this is the worst <laughs> yeah but so I think it's like this way of, it's like it's a way to sort of for us to view like what work could look like in this really ideal way that I think we all wish we could experience and like when I'm in the kitchen and like, I'm having a really good, I'm really in the vibe, right? Like the music is on, the food is good. I'm having fun. I'm like, oh, I could do this all day and I would never get tired of it. Right. And I think it like really draws on that feeling of like, oh, this is what it would feel like. That's like, I imagine this is what it would feel like to sort of do this all the time. Um, and like, I'm sure that's not true, but that is like the world I'm sort of building in my head as I watch these videos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that like, the relatability is one part of it. The second half of it is the very much like, oh, I could do that too. Like, I think all of us ha- watch these videos and we were like, okay, so like, I'll just like apply for culinary school and then I'll like do it and then be that. And this idea of the, let's say, compressed fantasy, this idea that like any of us could, you know, kind of also blow up on TikTok a little bit. I wonder... You know, do you think, Bettina, that this rise in this very specific like private chef content niche, do you think it's like a trend that you feel like is going to benefit the people who pioneered it? So the Merediths of the world, or do you see it more as like a longer lasting trend, basically meaning there's going to be a lot more converts to private chef because, you know, if we use the Emma Chamberlain comparison, there are so many vloggers who try to emulate Emma Chamberlain, but Emma Chamberlain is the only one who got an Architectural Digest home tour. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't, I think, I don't know. I think people have always wanted to be private chefs, right? Because it's like one of those jobs that sounds good and it feels like you have a lot of freedom. But I, and so, but so I don't know that it's necessary. I feel that it's going to necessarily like make more people want to do that. But I definitely think it's making more private chefs sort of feel like they should sort of influencer if I their work because I feel like my feed has just been so many other private chefs being like you know they they all literally do the same intro of like a day in my life as a private chef and like I've gotten a lot of them where like the views aren't doing well and like the content's just not as engaging and it's just sort of clear to me that like lots of people sort of want to cash in on that same moment that makes me want to ask what do you think it is that specifically draws people into this world of the Hamptons private chef? Do you think it's the voyeurism or is it more what Meredith is doing specifically? I think it's like, what are people obsessed with, right? And like, we're obsessed with rich people and we're obsessed with food. So I think it's kind of just like the perfect confluence of those things, right? And I think Meredith's food and her cooking and her personality very much fit into this like you know, who are the big cooking stars of the moment? And it's like Alison Roman, Molly Boz, like, you know, I think her cooking and her sort of personality feels very in line with that, where it's like these foods that are, you know, they're very like herb forward. They're kind of approachable. They use a lot of influences, but like ultimately rely on things that are like most like familiar to lots of people. So I think it's just like, I think that her content has just really tapped into like those particular cultural moments. And I think like, right, like everyone's sort of having this question of who's like the next generation's Martha Stewart. And I think, you know, especially like the Gen Z Martha Stewart. And I feel like, 
you know, I feel like her work and her cooking sort of slots into that conversation really nicely where it's like, okay, here is someone providing like, like food that I can make, but also this like really, right. Like it's a very Martha Stewart-esque, Ina Garten-esque lifestyle of like the Hamptons house and the beautiful food. So I think it's just like all of those factors just like created the perfect storm for these videos to do so well on TikTok. Yeah, that is such a great point. We're actually going to take a little short break now, but when we come back, we'll be talking with Bettina about if private chef TikTok is helping or hurting the labor movement. I know, I bet you didn't expect this to go in that direction. And whether your favorite social media influencer could be the next Martha Stewart, with or without the felonies. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. If you love our podcast, and I really, really hope you do, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcast, including this one. You'll also be supporting the show. ICYMI would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. You will also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like the new incredible season of Slow Burn, which is all about Clarence Thomas. You'll get bonus segments or episodes on other shows like Working, The Waves, Big Mood, Little Mood, and Dear Prudence. You will also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and advice column on Slate without ever, ever, ever hitting the paywall. To sign up, just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus. That is slate.com slash ICYMI plus. And we're back. Yeah, I think... 
for me at least, I think it's kind of interesting too that these videos kind of give me this vibe of like vacation escapism, summering in a place you can't afford to summer. I do also wonder if you guys picked up on this. I remember there was a video that Meredith posted about working a 17-hour day private chefing in the Hamptons. And something I just kind of noticed is that like one, 17 hours is like twice the union workers day. That's a labor thing. But the second thing is that these chefs, uh, including not Meredith, they're usually spending the entire day alone, traveling alone, buying groceries alone, prepping alone, cooking alone, relaxing by the beach alone, all this stuff. Is that maybe like a benefit of private chefing that, let's say, normal salaried chefs in the city don't get? Like, is that part of the luxury, just getting the ability to spend your time just like in this really nice place, but you don't really get to like hang out with your friends or talk to people. I mean, I think, you know, I think at least as someone who's like, you know, if I were to consider a food, like other food careers, right. Like it definitely seems like something that seems the most ideal. Cause you do like literally get the physical space. You, it does seem like you get a lot of sort of more creative control over what you're doing and you're not having to like butt heads with like your boss chef telling you what the menu is. Right necessarily like I'm sure the client has their input but it does feel like a space where like those like sort of stereotypical restaurant kitchen tensions just like wouldn't exist in the same way there's something really interesting to me that's almost metatextual about the popularity of the videos which is that it's about access to a luxury that most of us can't afford it's about seeing how rich people live which a lot of us are obsessed with but there's also this way that it's making visible labor that by design is supposed to usually be invisible, right? Like, unless you've worked in the food industry, you usually don't really understand the effort that goes into prepping meals for a lot of people or preparing multiple professional meals for people over the course of a day. And the people who are hiring these private chefs don't want to see that labor. That's that's the point of them. And I'm wondering how you, or if you see Private Chef TikTok as kind of part of that genre of TikTok that basically demystifies labor that most of us don't understand. Like I'm thinking of the fact that I now know how rugs are cleaned or how cars are detailed (laughs) or all of these things that I knew happened, but I wasn't sure how. I think Meredith has a video, for example, where she explains like how you might work for one family or you might have like a contract. Like she mentioned something where she was considering something where she'd have to like move internationally with some family, for example. Right. And so like, yeah, I think stuff like that is definitely like, you know, even though I know private chefs, I still don't really know how their jobs work. I just sort of assume like, oh, you go to the store, you cook these people a meal. Right. But so I do think that like this idea of like demystifying definitely makes it more interesting, especially seeing like, you know, how do they grocery shop? Like, what do they do when they have to go to these different places? I think that, yeah, I think, I think we definitely have learned to love through TikTok, the like behind the scenes, like process type stuff. And I think that's part of the appeal of this for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think something off the bat is that I am definitely a victim of the day in the life phenomena. I will watch all of them, no matter how boring or random these people are. But I think it's because I'm one of those people that really like when people show the work. It's like in math where your teacher is kind of like, show me how you got to the answer. And it's like, okay. And that's kind of also about process. And when I step back and I think about what it's maybe like to be on the other side of the camera as a creator, not a viewer, I sometimes find it a little odd that this genre of private chef TikTok 
kind of strikes me as people possibly glamorizing labor, specifically when that labor is performed by like young, attractive, beautiful, like Meredith White chefs. And what it kind of makes me jump to is like that really great Ali Wong joke where she's like, she wants to be rich enough to afford Whole Foods Mango that's cut by a guy named Noah. This like idea that the person doing the labor is also a product of the privilege. And to me, there's like a selling sunsetness to it. There's like this idea of like what Rachel was saying, going into the second kitchen, you're not supposed to. Um, it also kind of reminds me of like the Bon Appetit YouTube videos of like, like you said, Molly Baz and Claire in that beautiful white kitchen in World Trade Center. So I think my question here is like, do you think there's anything we're maybe not seeing in these TikToks? Do you think there's something that like viewers and fans maybe are missing or not thinking as critically about because we're just so distracted by how beautiful everything looks? Yeah, I mean, I think like the the really obvious sort of like thing that is absent is like the clients, right? Mm. And that's like what we're what we're not supposed to see. Like it's like I feel like it's understood that there is this like even if this private chef can make their sort of Drudge, like drudge work and the cooking into content. Like, you know, I think there still is a level of privacy that we, you know, we don't like, I know Meredith has sort of been open about who her clients are, but like for the most part, most people aren't talking about it. And I think that is the thing that I find really fascinating. Like we are seeing this like very controlled part of this situation. And like, we don't know about the like fights, for example, mm, like I'm yeah. sure there are times that you as a private chef don't get along with your client. I'm sure like, you know, I also wonder like, for example, is there tension about the fact that like these private chefs are also becoming sort of content creators about it. And I think that is like the really interesting thing where, to, to not sort of understand it all where we like understand what the day-to-day looks like, but there is like this sort of structure for how that work is happening that we don't understand. It reminds me of a video that Meredith did recently. Maybe it was a 17-hour day where at some point someone comes into the kitchen and says, Meredith, you've been in here for 12 hours now. And people in the comments are like, oh, was that your client? And she's like, no, that was the nanny. Like, we talk a lot. And it kind of shocked me out (laughs) of the way that I normally consume this content, which is... Again, this like Nancy Myers, beautiful, aspirational thing. And remembering that this is just rich people being able to do rich people things. And it's really fascinating to me that we, we three, and then also we as a generation are like kind of enamored by this content, despite the fact that I think most of us are pretty close to anti-capitalism. Well, like, right. I think that's also sort of part of the broad appeal of it, right? Is like, if I just watch person, like if I watch Kylie Jenner in her kitchen, I'm like, I can't relate to this. Like, you know, like it, I cannot align with the rich person. But so I think a lot of the like sort of draw of these videos is that like, it's easy for me as a worker and like a middle-class person to sort of align with the person who is like doing the work, right? Like, I think that's like, it's hard to... I str- like as much as I would like to, I struggle to envision myself as the person owning the Hamptons yeah. home. Yeah. But like as the person who's doing the labor in the Hamptons home, I think feels more achievable and more relatable. Um, and, you know, I think that is very telling about what I've sort of like decided is my role in the world. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it does explain a lot of why I feel, you know, why this video feels so nice. Cause it's like, I think a lot of us had have had like shitty jobs. So this is still like a job, but it's a less shitty one mm-hmm. or it's a less shitty seeming one. Yeah. Least. Yeah. If yeah. it's shitty, it's in a beautiful place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as we're talking about 
labor and just what it's kind of like to, (laughs) I guess, identify with the help over the client, which I also think is a very selling sunset thing. I was just wondering, do you think there's anything maybe a little problematic about us watching people glamorize their labor or romanticize their life and is there something kind of odd about us enjoying these videos so passively? Because, you know, when I was thinking about how this rise happened, I thought a lot about the pandemic and how Meredith's videos for me kind of converged three very hot topics that definitely started in 2020. You know, the first one being like CEOs escaping to the Hamptons with their second homes. The second being the idea of exploitative labor, the idea of having help. And then the third one just being this labor movement that is happening as we speak. You know, there's so many strikes going on. And I just wonder, do you think these videos like run in contrast to those ideas at all? I don't know. I think all of us are sort of grappling with how to make our labor feel good to us, right? Like, I think we Mm -hmm. all accept that there is like this sort of like bad bargain we have entered into in order to be able to exist in the world. And so I do think, you know, I do think it is a little bit odd that we have influencerified, like even the most, you know, even sort of fast food jobs. So like we've seen this whole thing where people like, right, like there's Dylan LeMay who started working at a Cold Stone and like started making videos while working as a Cold Stone and then leveraged that into being like huge on TikTok and then opening an ice cream shop and like finding success in that. So I think, you know, I think it's been this really interesting way of thinking about like, you know, I think there is this like kind of mindset that like even even jobs that feel like grunt work or that don't feel great can lead to something else if you sort of commodify them into TikTok content. Um, And I think, I don't know. And I think that, and I think I see the appeal of it, right? Because who of us doesn't imagine that we can't like, you know, I'm sure like all of us feel that way that we want to like be able to do something else that feels like we are working for ourselves and not this boss. But I do think this is sort of like the illusion of capitalism, right? That if we work harder and we take on this second hustle of also sort of like doing content creation, that we will suddenly like be our own boss, that we will be able to earn six figures or whatever. And ultimately that sort of just pushes all of us to just like do double the work. And for most people, like creating content on TikTok is not going to be terribly lucrative. You are just going to sort of like put a ton of time and like sort of effort and resources into it and like not necessarily ever see returns on that. So I think that feels like the big risk is that we, that a lot of people are sort of, you know, there is this lure that you will become TikTok famous and suddenly you will be like happy and less sort of like less a victim of capitalism. But, but like for most of us, it's only really going to make us like grind harder and like burn ourselves out more. I mean, I think about the fact that most content creators spend about 20 hours minimum a week making their content, which when you pile that on top of, again, a 17-hour workday, it really does make it seem less appealing as a concept. Well, like as a person who has like dabbled in making food content, right? This is like sort of like largely why I've like stopped because it's like I'm cleaning the kitchen to make it look nice for the content. I'm making the food. Then I'm cleaning the kitchen again to to live in it. And then I'm editing all the content and then doing all of the stuff to make it succeed on TikTok, right? And like so and that's just for one meal. But so like for someone to do that for a whole day, like it does re- it really is like such a huge task beyond that like 17 hour workday, which is already wild. My last question kind of goes back to what you were saying about, you know, our generation's Martha Stewart. And as I watch like Meredith make these videos and I watch her on camera, I think about 
the food influencers that I grew up with, like Rachel Ray, Giada De Laurentiis, like Food Network people, Bobby Flay, Emeril Lagasse. I've been trying to figure out how to describe the difference between their allure and someone like Meredith. And I've been having a really hard time figuring out what that difference is. And I'm wondering if you have a way to kind of articulate like the difference between like that kind of food star and the food star that is coming up. I feel like this is also the like parasocial relationship of it all, right? Is that Mm -hmm. like, I think increasingly the types of sort of food content creators we want and just content creators more broadly are like people who feel like they could be friends with us. Yes, Um, yeah, yeah. Right? Like I'm like, she goes to Trader Joe's just like me, right? And I think, so I think that is definitely part of it. Like I never watched, I mean, granted I was a child when I watched Emerald, but like, I don't think there would ever be a world where I would watch Emerald and be like, we could be friends, right? Like, it's like <laughs> you are like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, maybe you will be my boss, but like, we aren't going to be friends. <laughs> And that was Bettina McAlintal. Please check out her work on eater.com. She's not posting as much food content, but honestly, you can check out her Instagram for some old, beautiful food content. Couldn't recommend it more. And that is the show. We will be back in your feed on Saturday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode. Please leave a rating and review on Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. Tell your private chef friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can pretty much your questions like, do you think that I could be besties with Emerald Lagasse? And you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candace Lim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. See you online. Or in the Hamptons.